Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Today, we talk with Sam DuPlessis about his career change from MGO at the Wharton School to Director of Advancement at Pennsylvania Libraries, both positions within the University of Pennsylvania. He talks about the differences he both expected and didn't between being an individual contributor and leader of a team. We also have the treat of learning more about the libraries at Penn and the reputational risk that comes with working alongside such treasures. Sam is the Director of Advancement at the University of Pennsylvania Libraries, which has over 400 full-time staff who manage 14 departmental libraries. His team manages four boards and raises approximately $10 million a year in cash, pledges, and gifts of materials such as books, manuscripts, and photographs, all with no natural constituency. Whereas most schools and centers at Penn have alumni, the libraries have no graduates and count on campus partners to identify prospects who are interested in their funding priorities and engagement opportunities. Prior to this role, Sam was a major gift officer at the Wharton School, covering alumni living in the Southeast and Texas. Sam has also worked as an MGO at Bryn Mawr College and spent five years in the admissions office at the University of Chicago. Sam earned his undergraduate and master's degrees in classical music. He is also an avid art collector and has presented six sales of work by emerging artists since the start of 2021. Now let's get started. Sam, welcome to The Debrief. Thank you, Catherine. I'm really excited to be here. So tell us where you were and where you are now and when you made your transition. I was at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, working almost exclusively with MBA alumni. So a very different sector of the alumni population in a region as well. And that really affected who I was working with. I worked with alumni in Texas, Florida, Atlanta, and other parts of the South. Um, and I did that for three and a half years and had a great, great experience. And I was ready to move on to a different kind of challenge and something that was a little bit closer to my personal interests and passions without diving completely into them because I didn't want to get too deep into you know, my personal interests in a professional way. Um, so I'm now at the University of Pennsylvania Libraries leading the advancement team there. And when, has it been a couple of months now? Yeah, just about three months tomorrow. So coming right up on it. So how big is the team at the libraries? There are six of us, including me, when we are fully staffed. So you mentioned your personal passions, that there was some alignment there. So what, what about, tell us about your personal passions and how it attracted you to the libraries. Going into the Wharton School, I took a huge leap of faith because my background is in classical music. I'm an art lover. I collect contemporary and modern art. I represent some artists. I have a, a bit of a side career. And I'll shout out Shauna Hawking again, who coined that phrase of side career instead of side hustle. So I've got all these other things in my life, and I wanted those to map a little bit more closely to my professional experiences. And so, you know, at the Wharton School, I couldn't have told you what private equity or a hedge fund was five years ago. I really learned a lot, and I met some great people in those worlds and in those networks, but I was ready to come back to a place where I felt like all of who I am was going to be valuable in my work. And that has absolutely been the case at the Penn Libraries are not just a place for dusty old books. There are so many parts of art and culture and history that are uh, found and stored and preserved and shared through a library, especially a large academic library. So everything from medieval musical manuscripts to photography collections, uh, to archives of important people, 
we, we hold these things and we preserve them for, for all time and for research. I don't know. Are you primarily getting collections with, with money value or are people giving you like cash gifts as well? Yeah, it's a great question. Our, our team raises both. So we are doing everything, the, the six of us, or when we're fully staffed, do everything from events and annual fund to major gifts and endowed gifts, capital spaces, and then these gifts of items. We call them gifts in kind. So mm -hmm. gifts of collections and books and manuscripts. And oftentimes we ask for a cash gift with these collections because that helps us with processing and storage. For instance, we're about to acquire a special collection of photographs that require a special cold storage uh, refrigerators that we're going to acquire uh, with a cash gift as well. So it, it's all a part of the work, which again, it's another interesting, surprising piece for me. I've heard people say that sometimes getting gifts in kind can be more expensive than their value <laughs> because of preserving. Because exactly. Of preserving. Exactly. So while we give the donors, uh, you know, donor credit, campaign credit, they can write it off on their taxes. Uh, you know, the library CFO and the university CFO always want to see cash gifts coming in with those because they are very expensive to store and maintain. Tell us about your interview process. Like, how did you land where you landed? It's all a matter of fate. I think I certainly was not looking for a new position. I really enjoyed being a major gift officer, having you know a, a tremendous number of very wealthy donors who are really committed to the institution. Uh, Wharton has an incredible budget for the alumni and donor work. And I was, you know, I was at that really sweet spot, three and a half years, where I really had strong relationships. The pipeline was stocked and ready, but the opportunity popped up, and I knew the hiring manager and the person I would eventually work for, and it was it was a person I definitely wanted to work for. So that was a part of it. And then, as we've talked about, this idea of getting to apply my skills and background a little more fully into the work, and then absolutely the career ladder too, that I could stay at my institution, keep all my institutional knowledge of systems and people and databases, and continue to work. It was kind of win, win, win all of those ways for me. What did you find hiring managers were looking for when you were interviewing and talking to this upcoming team? Yeah, that's a great question. And it was, it was a bit of a surprise for me. I thought people were going to ask about my biggest gift or, you know, how many dollars I had closed in my last fiscal year or what percentage of my goal I had made. And I didn't get asked a single time. Instead, they wanted to know how I would solve complex problems, how I would build bridges and relationships around campus with different alumni groups, with different other fundraising groups. And the uh, academic staff wanted to know how I would approach uh, ultra high net worth folks who are in our network. And that was really interesting to hear that that was a priority for them was to access those people. And my experience at Wharton allowed me to answer that really confidently and authentically because I'd had those experiences. Do you think that their mindset was a result of a shift in culture? Because I know Wharton is, is so distinct or is it a different kind of job? And that's why they're not getting into the nitty gritty of gifts and things. It's a different kind of job. You know, when I was reading and preparing to start or even to interview for this job, I read a lot of advice for first-time managers. And what kept coming up again and again was that going from an individual contributor to a manager is not a job change, it's a career change. And I think that has absolutely been true for me. The part of my work that is donor work is maybe 10%. It's still incredibly important. It's a, it's a big 10%. But there's so many other things that I do and I'm responsible for as the leader of this team that my, my role has completely changed. And so I actually think it's really appropriate that uh, my the hiring team was asking me about solving problems, putting systems in place, being strategic, you know, making challenging decisions on the fly. Those are really the key skills. 
because they expect that you you know how to be a fundraiser. That's that's what I've been doing for the past 10 years. And when you think about those questions of making decisions quickly and thinking strategically, are you confident in those skills? <laughs> yeah, right, somewhere right in the middle there. Certainly learning a whole lot, but helping the team prioritize and shedding things that are not providing a return. That's really what I've helped the most with, especially now that we're down to three of us currently instead of six. What we're doing is we are just shedding anything that is not mission critical, that is taking up more time than it's returning. And that's that part feels natural because it's we're in such a, I don't want to say dire situation, but it is so crucial that we be strategic with our time because time is so precious. That part is coming naturally, but the looking at the portfolio of work that our team can and should be doing, figuring out how to reallocate that, how to prioritize that, that has been really complex. And the second you choose one thing, you realize another thing is just as important. And so that's something that I've been working through. And, and knowing that I'm not going to make the right decision every time, that was advice that I got from a lot of people. People telling me that just have to be open to making mistakes and knowing you're not going to get it right on the first try. And that has really served me well, it's to not be too critical of myself. For every five decisions, at least four of them are going to be imperfect, but that gets you to the right decision eventually. And it's part of the process. I love that you're prioritizing. And of course, you have to be nimble and agile. How are you prioritizing? Can you talk us through the tracks of areas that you need to put out front? We could spend the next three hours talking about those tracks hmm. because, you know, and I'll tell you the way I think about it is coming from the Wharton School, where we had about 100 people thinking about alumni from the alumni magazine, stewardship events, local clubs course, major and principal gifts, annual giving. So I'm trying to replicate all of that with six of us, now three. And so trying to condense all of that, and that may not be the right approach. I'll say that here, that I'm learning that that may be the wrong way of approaching things is, is condensing all that. Rather, maybe I should be thinking about what can we do with this team and how do we put those in the right order? Nevertheless, I'm really prioritizing relationships. And I think that is my guiding star so far. Of course, relationships with donors and volunteers. Those are crucial. And with a small team right now, we really have to maintain those so that they'll be there when we're fully staffed. But internal relationships too. I think that my best partnerships are going to be with other fundraisers around the university who will bring donors to us because they see what an incredible experience it is to be involved with the libraries. And then my internal partners, the academic partners of the libraries, the development and alumni relations partners, and of course, my people too, the people on my team. I prioritize them and their well-being and their health and their interests and their happiness. So how are you advocating for your team within this academic unit? Yeah, that's a, a challenge I didn't really expect was needing to explain to academic leaders how, how we go about our work and justify the expense of six people uh, who raise somewhere between eight and 10 or $12 million, again, in cash and gifts in kind every year. So, you know, it depends on who I'm speaking to, whether it's our CFO or academic leader or some of my academic partners, but really helping them understand our work and making it visible because all they see is the gift signatures when we submit it for their signature or when we all go to that Zoom meeting together to congratulate a donor on signing their gift. All the other things, as you know, and we all know that go into those gifts from the, you know, the first email introduction or the first event introduction all the way through the in, uh, engagement opportunities and the cultivation steps. Uh, the 12 to 18 months, sometimes 24 or three years worth of cultivation that go into that gift, helping that be really clear so that they're more aware of what the team does that goes way beyond signing gift agreements. 
have the academic leaders historically been utilized in asks and donor work, or is that something new you're bringing to the table? They have, but figuring out who's best at what, where the skill sets are, and how to empower them to be successful in those conversations so that they're not out of water or uncomfortable has been one of the big learning curves as well. But absolutely, they're key to our work. Our, our donors love our librarians and our academic leaders. The ideas they bring and the passion they bring to the work is so key to selling the, the opportunities. It's such a special experience. I know because I've had a couple of meetings with donors and the Columbia libraries, and it just feels like this once in a lifetime opportunity to speak with this world expert on this one subject. So I just, I've only gotten a peek under the tent of it, but I know how incredibly special it is. So it's fun hearing you talk about it. Absolutely. And this is where it comes back to sharing that passion with the work that I can be a good advocate for our director of special collections, because my background does allow me to understand him and his work and articulate that to our donors in a way that somebody who's just completely unfamiliar with academic special collections would just have a harder time doing really authentically. And so I think that's one of the reasons, again, that I feel so engaged in the work and so successful so far. And I agree. It's great to hear, you know, I'll say nerd and not pejoratively, but somebody really nerd out about their subject matter because that can just draw you in and get you excited about it as well. I know that's why we use our academic leaders, but particularly at the libraries, people don't go into library work unless it's a deep passion for them. Thinking about your previous role at Wharton, you might not be able to answer this yet, but do you think that timeline for a gift is longer with the libraries? Absolutely. Yes, we're definitely educating a lot of first-time donors. We have a society for, I would say, yeah, for first-time philanthropists where the gift level is, is fairly modest to endow a fund. And my experience with a number of universities tells me that this is a really nice number to get an endowed fund at a university. And so we use that to educate donors and bring them into the fold. And even those gifts sometimes take much longer than we would have expected. At a place like Wharton, it felt more transactional to me and not in all situations, but on the whole. And so I think when you are building gifts around a person's passion, you have to spend more time getting to know their passions and interests in order to make the right pitch. And that just takes longer too. And the endowment size, is that 50,000? It is. Yeah. And in fact, we uh, offer a match in some cases too. So uh, it's not always even that, that level. So just a really sweet spot for yeah. somebody who's doing well in their career and starting to think about philanthropy and involvement. Yeah, definitely. So one more question about management, mm -hmm. just in being a first-time manager, how has it felt for you? I know you've been online, but what has it been like? It's great. And now my I'll say that my sample size is very small. In fact, my sample size is one. I've been a first-time manager one time in one place. And, and it could be that the people are fantastic. I think I chose well in my institutional move. And the team that currently exists are people that I have a huge amount of faith and belief in and really like as people. And they seem to like me. At least they do a good job pretending. And so that has been unbelievably satisfying is to get to share what I know, help make decisions, guide the team, in a way that feels really exciting and productive for everyone. And I, I hope they would say the same thing. I believe they would, but I really couldn't imagine enjoying this more from that perspective of being a first-time manager. I'll share something that I have initiated here, and that is in our team meetings, um, which often includes our communication staff as well, because they're so key to our work. So sometimes it's a fairly large group of people who don't always work together. So we've been doing icebreakers at the beginning of every meeting. And 
I thought they were going to reject this. I thought they were going to think it was cheesy. And we love it because we're learning fascinating things about each other that end up making the work so much more human and personal. So, you know, sharing our, our worst job that we had in high school or college or uh, <laughs> the first concert we went to, or this week's icebreaker was what reality show would you go on if you could go on any reality show? And you just <laughs> learn so much about people and it, and it takes away the, any, anything that someone's put up to protect themselves from really being invested as a person in their work. And I, I love what it's done for our team to have these ad hoc conversations about non-work-related topics that help us be better professionals. I love that you're doing that. And I actually heard that from another guest on here where they had in there, it was more of a monthly meeting with the bigger group, but it was good news to share that had nothing to do with work and mm-hmm. similar experience of just learning things you didn't know about people. And I'm hoping that we can take that kind of thing and hold on to it post pandemic. Absolutely. This is something I would, I would do for the rest of my career, as long as it was meaningful for the people participating. Oh, that's so great. Thank you for telling us that tip. I hope it works as well for everyone else. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about MGO to manager now let's shift into moving within a big institution. I know that a lot of our listeners work at big universities. Some of them are at smaller places, but there are definitely specific best practices that I think should be used when making internal moves. Do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say that for me, being an internal candidate allowed me to know some of the best practices of the university and the systems and the people But I also think that in some ways you have to kind of start fresh and build new partnerships because you don't have any of the professional, political capital, personal capital with people kind of have to start over in some of those ways because you're either abandoning your old part of the institution and you're starting new with new people. So that that was tricky to feel like I had to start from scratch in terms of asking for favors or negotiating or um, looking for support from other units or other people. So that that one was a, a surprise I didn't quite expect either. So you had a a dual report with what sounds like two fundraisers, and now you have a dual report, but it's with an academic leader and a non-fundraiser. Right. Right. Yeah. This is a whole new world. So, uh, you know, having two people really guiding your work, both who are experts in their fields, who have been in their areas for a really long time, both are very well respected, both are very smart people, and yet these people come to different conclusions and have different priorities. And I think that that probably is a given, but it is, you know, there is, um, there is uh, a lot uh, of strength on both sides of this. And so there's no obvious way that the pendulum swings in this, in my dual reporting experience currently. And so uh, learning to align an academic leader and their priorities and their timelines, particularly on a fiscal year or a budget year versus a development leader who is more focused on long-term relationships, the, like we talked about the gift cycle being you know, a year or two years, three years, sometimes five years campaign cycles versus we need cash to pay for this program yesterday. And so some of those tensions have been complex to navigate. But again, when you're working with people who trust you and believe in you as professional, uh, you're able to come to some conclusions to those. But that is definitely a tricky part of my work being, you know, really the senior leader of my team, but yet being not even close to on par with the people I report to. And so it's a really funny position to be in. I know you're not the only one. Certainly a lot of associate deans will report to the dean of their school and the head mm-hmm. of development. That's probably the mm-hmm. most common example I can think of. How do you think you're going to handle a time where the two have very different 
responses or needs from you and you have to balance that. <laughs> Catherine, I wish I had a good answer for this one. This is one where <laughs> I'm only three months in and yeah. it's we're going to kind of have to wait and see how that goes. I think what I can do to make that, when, when that happens, the things I can be doing now to make that smoother and easier are to be, again, building those personal relationships and building trust with both of those managers so that when I say, I'm hearing both sides and here is the middle, here's the compromise, and I need you to believe me that we all give a little bit and we get to a, you know, a good compromise, a happy conclusion. I think that's what I can be doing now so that those are easier when those situations come. Because you're right, they undoubtedly will come when development needs one thing, academic side needs one thing, and they're not aligned. So having good relationships and having trust and you know, trust in my, me as a professional and as a person is going to make that easier than it could be otherwise. I love that answer that it's not about the one decision. It's about everything leading up to it. That is just I, I so wise, Sam. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I have to believe that. And I'm not sure I would have told you that three months ago, but it certainly has been the case when you are making difficult decisions basically all day, every day, triaging, so solving problems. It's good for the brain. I'll say that. Lots of new pathways. That's exactly <laughs> how I think of it. Exactly. Exactly. So I know Penn's a big, complicated place and that you are in a new area, but you must have, well, I know you have existing campus partners. Which ones do you think you'll be working with the most in this role? Yeah, um, our central major gifts team. And if you're out there listening, know that I'm coming for you. I'm counting on you. Um, I actually shared a presentation with the central major gifts team who manage basically all undergraduate alumni for the University of Pennsylvania, with some exceptions. The way our schools and systems are, work is that the individual schools get to work with and manage the alumni that they graduate. The libraries have no graduates. We've never had an academic program. And so we count on partners, fundraising partners in particular, but program partners throughout the university to be our advocates and to bring people to us who are going to be interested in what we're doing. And so I did an hour-long Zoom presentation with our Central Major Gifts team last week. I'll be going around to other departments and units who work with uh, donors who might be interested in what we're doing to share with them basically key volunteer opportunities, our, our academic priorities, and how to be involved as a volunteer leader. What are the board opportunities and things like that. And I'm really counting on those to be successful parts of our work because we can't just go through the names of people who sign up for our events or our mailing list. It's not, that does not build a development program. But having bridges set up so that people can walk their donors and their alumni right over that bridge, right to the libraries, metaphorically speaking, uh, is how we're going to be successful. And so I have truly prioritized that work uh, in my first couple of months because it's, it is going to be the future for our success. How often do you foresee yourself getting in front of that team to give updates? Hmm, that's a really good question. I actually had not thought past getting it started, you know, doing my first round of intros with those people. And I think it's probably going to be less formal than that. You know, at least once a year is the answer. But yeah. I would say having lunch with those people, meeting up with them when I'm in New York, we have a New York team, um, and collaborating, you know, inviting them to collaborate on donor visits and calls throughout the year so that Again, so those relationships are there when the opportunities present themselves. So for people listening, sometimes I talk about my job, not all the time, but if you're new to the channel, I am a central major gift officer. So <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think once a year is really important, but also those one-on-ones are so important because we forget, you know, mm -hmm. central major gift officers have so many different things mm -hmm. to keep 
in mind. And so I'm glad that you're going straight to them. Absolutely. Yeah. And as you know, Catherine, as I know from my experience, you sell what you know, too. I have long shared the story that there is a uh, academic program at Penn that was never really a campaign priority, but they were so good at managing donors. I brought them. They made our donors feel like rock stars. They did incredible stewardship without being asked. They had great events that were high level. I brought the, I kept bringing them donors because I knew the donor would have a good experience and feel really keyed in and connected. And that's what I'm going to do and what we are doing for our campus partners. Yeah, it's going to be so interesting to see, you know, a year from now, if you, if there are any patterns or themes of which schools have alums bubbling up for you or which industries are kind of mm. coming your way, because it's not necessarily going to be all artists. Like you could have a hedge fund manager who's super passionate about like the papers of, you know, William sure. Penn. I don't know. Sure, exactly. It's a great point, Catherine. And you know, we don't have time to go into all the details of it, but my, my board actually, um, in my view, and again, it's three months in, so we'll see what I think in a year. My board actually has very few collectors and academics on it. It's actually about half uh, people who work in some kind of finance, you know, who come from that, that background or that world, um, and, and a number of folks who are professional volunteers and philanthropists. Um, and a smattering of other kinds of people who are in entertainment or publishing that are re relevant industries. Um, but you're, you, you make an interesting point that um, there is no I kind of obvious libraries donor, and that's something that I'm learning as well. That's been really interesting. Yeah, that's a, it's a blessing and a curse, I think. Exactly. <laughs> the, the exactly. It's a big opportunity. Up. Yep, they're out there. We just have to help people see that. Has your viewpoint of Penn changed since seeing it from a new lens? I'll say yes in that I'm learning all sorts of new things. You know, being at one of the, the schools at Penn rather than a central organization really gives you a deep dive into that school, but you miss out on a lot of things. And again, I said I was working mostly with MBA alumni who have a very specific kind of experience at Penn. So learning the undergraduate traditions, learning campus all over again with a new perspective, learning the libraries for the first time. You know, I still haven't set foot in most of the library's capital spaces because of the pandemic. So there's, there's a lot to learn, and it's definitely helping me see the institution differently and understand the alumni experience or the student experience and then how that translates into alumni work. So absolutely, that, that has been really different for me. What surprised you the most? This is a great question because I feel like there's a surprise every couple of hours in this work. And I say <laughs> that in a great way, you know, with a big yeah. smile. I love the novel challenges, and I think that, you, I think that that's not going to be true for every person going into a management role. I think one of the biggest things that I have found myself doing that nobody prepared me for is thinking, realizing that I'm responsible for institutional reputational risk. And this was not obvious to me until I was sitting in a meeting discussing our pipeline of gift in kind. Again, those are gifts of materials or books or papers, artworks even, and realizing that there were a couple of questions about some of the gifts that we were considering, uh, gifts of provenance, gifts of authentic, uh, questions of uh, authenticity, questions that led us to wonder what was the motivation for making this gift? Was it some sort of questionable tax break issue that, you know, of course is not our responsibility, but that if it's on the front page of the New York Times, it certainly is our problem once, once that happens. And so I didn't really think I would be in a position to be kind of the end of the line, questions about gifts, cash gifts, and gifts of materials that might have some sort of reputational risk for the institution. And, it actually really excited me to realize I was in that position because they're really complex, 
questions. It's never black and white or straightforward. And this is where, you know, my bookshelf behind me, which of course our listeners can't see, but it's full of books about art heists and art forgeries. And oh. that's always just been a personal interest of mine. And all of a sudden it is a literal mapping onto my work of, of needing to know where does this piece come from? Who owned this? How was it created? Or, you know, can we have legal right to it? Well, we have copyright to this item, but it is, it is literally someone's job to make sure that we don't end up on the front page of the New York Times because we accepted a, a forged artwork or something that had been stolen at some point, uh, because that, that is our responsibility as a fundraising team to think about that. You know, as fundraisers, we all wanna, always want to get to that finish line, but I think that this is one of those situations where really feeling out every part of the situation is so, so important. And while I do think in your space, it's, it's more day-to-day and more top of mind, I think reputational risk is very much coming to the forefront in our industry in general. I think we're mm-hmm. all grappling with, especially when it comes to mega gifts, who are we mm-hmm. accepting them from? What's the backstory? And so I think it's amazing that you're getting that experience because I don't think it's going to go away. Absolutely. I think you're right. I think there's more and more scrutiny on higher education, like you mm-hmm. said, particularly around admissions, particularly around philanthropy. Naming uh, you know, opportunities. Where, yeah, absolutely. Who's getting those naming opportunities? How are they being decided? Uh, and how are they being screened too? And I think that will probably become a bigger part of our work, even at the MGO level um, going forward. I think you're right. Well, this has been so much fun, Sam. Yes. Thank you so and much. We love getting the fresh perspective of, from the first 90 days. Yes, I'm wondering what I will think of this, you know, in a year from now when I listen, but I think it's a great time capsule and I hope it's yeah. useful and helpful to other people thinking about that change and understanding how much changes when you go from individual contributor to manager of a team, how you have to give up so much of your, your ability to manage your time. You be, your time becomes everyone else's. What do you know for sure, Sam? Mm, I love this question, Catherine. And, you know, as a new manager, not very much right now, um, <laughs> but... I think something that has come up for me over and over again, and I, I may have alluded to this, is that if we treat our colleagues and donors and team members as people first, and as colleagues, donors, and team members second, we're going to have deeper relationships that end up being more meaningful and productive in the end. Everybody wants to be seen. Everybody wants to be heard. And if you do that first, whether it's your donor or your manager or your employee, I think you end up better in the long Well, thank you and good luck. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, I, I look forward to staying Uh, caught up with you and I love what you're doing here. So thank you so much for providing this incredible platform. We learned a lot from Sam. My biggest takeaways were as follows. Be open to making mistakes when starting a new role and don't try to replicate exactly from your previous position as every place has new needs. The dual report structure is a challenge, but it sounds like it's a rewarding one. And above all, lean on campus partners as much as possible. Thank you for tuning in and please connect on LinkedIn or social media at Dev Debrief. I would love to hear from you and more than happy to continue the conversation. Have a great week.